Hi, I'm Doug DeVries and I practice in Sparks, Nevada. And uh, main emphasis on my practice right now, really limited to uh, ocular surface disease. And I am joined here with just a fabulous optometrist, Leslie O'Dell. Leslie, tell a little bit about yourself. I'm Dr. Leslie O'Dell. I'm the medical director for Medical Optometry America. And much like you, a big part of what I'm doing every day is addressing ocular surface disease, whether it's a patient that is looking to wear their contact lenses longer in the day or someone I'm getting ready for a surgical referral. You know, and as we look at OSD uh, and, and dry eye disease, we see that it's very common in patients with glaucoma, in patients that wear contact lens, in patients with diabetes. Uh, what type of patient groups has the, the most least incidence of dry eye in your experience? Well, these are all great call-outs for the type of patients that we're seeing. And I think that if you look through the literature, you see quite varied percents of prevalence with conditions like diabetes. But if you, you know, are looking, the more that you're looking, the more that you're going to find. So for me, my call-out a lot of times is my contact lens wearing patients, my patients that know they have allergies, and definitely my glaucoma patients. This has been, you know, something that we've been creating for our glaucoma patients for many years. And now it's nice to see that we're actually starting to proactively address ocular surface issues as we're protecting the vision you know, with our management of glaucoma. You know, you mentioned the prevalence data and how you look at different papers and things are different for these. But the one thing that's common is all about triple what the normal rate would be. So even though we don't know the exact percentages, like for glaucoma, and it depends on what type of drugs they are in glaucoma. If they're on a PGA, it's going to be higher. If they're on different types of drugs, it may. But we know that regardless of those numbers, it all seems to be about triple of what we would see in the typical population. Interesting. And also, if you look at the data, probably the age range is changing too. So not only more prevalent, but also we're seeing it in our younger patient populations. And what was maybe traditionally thought of as that postmenopausal female patient, we now see obviously men are affected by dry eye disease and younger and younger ages of our patients. Well, and you know, and, and we, uh, you and I and our clinics and doctors across the country really stage this, you know, the, the treatment, the, the diagnosis on it. Let's talk about the different stages and how they affect the quality of life. Well, quality of life has really been my main motivator for wanting to learn more, keep current, and really just address ocular surface for my patients. Um, if you have one patient that you've improved their quality of life, it really is your motivator to continue that journey, right? So for me, some of the things that I have really seen was ability to read after a work day. So I've had patients that that was their activity they wanted to do at the end of working was read books and they couldn't do that anymore. And as we worked to rehab the ocular surface, that activity became something they could do more. I once had a patient that was traveling to help her daughter um, and she couldn't see to drive at night from glare. And you know, traditionally you might think, oh, cataracts could be at play. In this woman's, it was just an unhealthy tear, um, tear layer and quality of vision related to that. And as we rehab the ocular surface, she was able to drive confidently again. And you know, that really changed her life for the better. You know, you mentioned those, those aspects that are affected by life. That's one thing that I always try to do is try to define how the dry eye is affecting their life. And then we have a goal, and then we know it may not be just 
the staining I see, it may not be the lines of visual acuity. Are we achieving that goal that we'd like to try to get that patient and restore some of that quality of life? Yeah, I do ask, ask my patients that, what is their goal? Um, and it ranges. I had a young lady once that said, every time she went running, her eyes would water. And she just wanted to be able to run without having that tearing effect. And so it is important that you talk to your patients so that you understand the impact on quality of life and then together you're both you know working toward what's going to make them happier in their own eyes well quite often it can define success on those on those patients if if it's just the signs that you're looking for but you have to impact the patient's life and i think that's important and speaking of impact let's talk about impact on cataract surgery what what and dry eye and how do you view that you know before you send a patient for a cataract referral that is a great question. So for me, this has been um, really my learning curve into dry eye was when I was working with a cataract refractive surgeon and a lot of our patients were having surgery and then the, the after effect of that was increased keratitis, worsening dry eye or an awareness of their eyes that they had not had previously. Um, and really I think optometry is in the position as the referring doctor to really take the lead here. Once you refer your patient into a busy practice like yours mm -hmm. and surgery has to be delayed, it's cumbersome to deal with. You have rescheduling and you know all of the things that go into your cataract patient's journey through the practice that gets disrupted. And we don't want that to be how our surgeons see us. We want to actually give them a patient that has this optimized surface and is just ready to get into that process so that they can achieve their goal, the patient's goal, which would be you know, that better vision at the end. So for me, what I've been doing now as a referral to my cataract surgeons is when I know that the cataract is ready for surgery, I actually, if I haven't done it on that day, I will bring them back to my office before their first visit with the surgeon and I do a, a kind of pre-operative exam of my own um, and I explain that to the patient. I want you to have your healthiest eye going into this surgery. They get that, they're willing to come back and then I'm not rushed on that first visit when I'm talking through cataracts and all of their options. I have the time um, to really rehab the ocular surface. And then that's where all my diagnostics kind of help me with um, point of care testing and, and things along those lines. So those are some incredibly valuable tips. Uh, and there's not a, a referral center around that wouldn't love to have every patient screened and, and looked at and treated before the referral. I think it's real important because you mentioned efficiency of getting patients to the surgery, having them in an efficient manner but also the accuracy, the accuracy of the biometry, the accuracy of that IOL calculation in determining that implant. And I think now with today's high technology presbyopia correcting lenses and toric lenses that we're seeing in extended depth of focus, that it's so important to go in with a pristine uh, ocular surface for just simply the numbers and then making it be able to work. Because I think in the past what's happened, a lot of patients have been back in optometry practices where those issues weren't taken care of and they're not happy patients at that they point. They are not. They are the 2020 unhappy patients. <laughs> the patients that often feel as though they can feel the lens. 
but really it's yeah. the keratitis or inflammation that they're feeling. You started mentioning point of care tests. Let's talk a little bit about the point of care test that uh, that you are most comfortable with and that you really rely on. So for me, point of care testing is essential to my dry eye management. Um, I utilize a speed survey, a questionnaire ahead of the patient exam. So they fill that out when they're in my waiting room and that allows me to have a standing order. So my technicians know if a certain score is um, calculated on that speed survey, they have the ability to do my point of care testing. Um, and I use all that is available to me right now with tear film osmolarity and MMP9 testing. These two tests really allow me to understand more the chemistry of the patient's tear. We know hyperosmolarity is a big driver for inflammation. So it's good to pair these two tests together to see where your tear volume is, but then also to see how much inflammation is on the ocular surface. I agree, you're really triangulating the problem at that point because you can have ocular surface disease and you can have a high inflammation and a normal osmolarity or vice versa, but it kind of leads you, at least it leads me into a, a diagnostic. Now, something that I also do, even though you don't bill it as a point of care test, I use the same metric on the speed questionnaire to also generate my biography. So I'm taking my bone because I really consider that an essential point of care test, even though it's technically not a point of care test that you're going to bill for from a CLIA waiver standpoint. Yeah, that's a great call out and having just that really protocol, I think, in your practice um, really helps efficiencies of managing these dry eye patients. Yeah, so let's specifically talk about osmolarity testing. Well, osmolarity testing, we know from TFAS Do's original that hyperosmolarity is, the drive, is a driving force of ocular surface inflammation. I think that some of our colleagues over the years of having access to this have been maybe confused a little bit about the variable number. I get some of that feedback, but to me that is teaching me about the state of the patient and their ocular surface. So for example, if I have a patient that has one eye with the normal number on tear film osmolarity, but the other eye is in the hyper zone, I might be thinking about what did that patient do before they got in my office? Did they have heat on in the car? Was the window down that was you know causing evaporative stress? So when I see that imbalance, I don't think, oh, maybe this test was, is confusing. It helps me see maybe this test is showing me um, evaporative dry eye. You know, and you bring up a great point, and that is the variation between the two eyes, which speaks loudly to what I've learned in using osmolarity testing is that you can have a false negative because you can have a reflex tear that will dilute the solute because that's all you're measuring, the solute concentration of the tear but you can't have a false positive. You can't generate more solute right. concentration. So I think that that has thrown in the past a lot of clinicians off that it's like, oh, I have a 327 number and I have a 290 number. You can have a false positive, but you a false negative, but you cannot have a false positive. And that has really helped me in utilization of, of tear film osmolarity. Yeah, I mean, it's a great tool for the toolbox. And aside from maybe measuring tear meniscus height, it's hard to really see where that patient is without these tests. Yeah, I agree. What about uh, measuring MMP9s? So MMP9 you know, has been a really great addition also. Inflammation, again, the driving force of what we're seeing when we do get our vital dyes on board, that keratitis and um, conjunctival staining. So this is important. Sometimes you have a white eye 
that registers quite high on MMP9 yeah. testing. So the hallmark of inflammation being redness, we can't always count on in our dry eye patients. That's so true, that's so true. And I, and I think it helps differentiate. And I think one of the things that it differentiates, I have the patient that comes in, the case history is just classic dry eye that you'd think, and then all of a sudden you realize, well, they have a normal osmolarity, but they have a very high MMP9. So now I'm thinking and looking, okay, at corneal dystrophy, looking at uh, epithelial basement membrane dystrophy as a, uh, as an option, so it, to me, it also helps differentiate what I'm actually what I'm actually seeking. What I'm Would you for. also think about lid disease in those patients, positive on MMP9, but maybe normal osmolarity? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Take a look at that as well, because you know something drove those meibomian glands uh, to have those poor secretions and that obstruction. Yep. And I think that's the helpful part as well uh, when we take a look at um, when we take a look at the myography. Well. I think it's important with the point of care testing to really empower your staff. Um, the more that your staff is on board with your dry eye management plans, the, the better it's going to be for patient care. And these tests are very easy for technicians to be trained on and perform. And they don't take a lot of time out of the clinic day, um, especially when you're looking at MMP9 testing because you have this 10-minute processing period that you have to really... Um, make sure that you're looking at that test within that 10 minutes. So we write down the time and the eye, because if you look at it too early, sometimes you might miss a weak positive. Correct, correct. And, and it's interesting because the positive mark on that is at 40 nanograms per milliliter, which should be a type two or a stage two dry eye. And so you really have to discern that's muscle winning the proper time. You mentioned something I think is so critical to a successful uh, practice in treating ocular surface and that is your staff. I mean, you have to have staff buy-in. My opinion, they should be able to finish a question or a, word, a sentence that you start. They should be in concert with you and I think that that's a real important aspect because if you empower your staff, they will take that because they get to see the results. They get to enjoy the fact that the patient is coming back and saying, I feel so much better, and they know they were part of that. So I think establishing a dry eye coordinator or a key individual to kind of lead those those charges in your uh, in your practice has been, I know it's worked out extremely well from, from my standpoint. Yeah. You know, we talked about MGD, we talked about, you know, doing osmolarity and inflammation. How important do you think it is? And, and do you believe you can silo into just strictly evaporative or just strictly aqueous deficient? Well, I do think that, you know, we've come a long way in our understanding of dry eye and what we used to put in those two individual buckets, if you will, of diagnosis, we now know a majority of our patients are living in this middle of the road. They have combined disease. And so you can't really do a dry eye diagnostic evaluation and ignore the lid and the meibomian glands. So your call out about using mybography as part of your standing order is, is great because A, you wanna see structure to those glands, but you can't solely stop on the picture. And every, every patient encounter should also involve that gland expression and evaluation to see exactly what is releasing out of those glands to give you a better idea of lipid stability, um, tear stability. For you know, patients. that's so correct. I mean, what you're looking at is you have structure and it takes seconds to now understand function. And that is looking at the functionality of that mybum. Is it clear? Is it colorless? Or is it thick? And is it turbid? So I think that's really, really important. And I, and I agree with you. 
I mean, what we're finding in clinical practice is that we, we really have this continuum and everybody physiologically is reacting and their, their aqueous deficiency may have a little bit more, the, the MGD may be, I think everybody reacts different, but I'm finding that it's on a continuum on how that patient responds. And I, the case I bring in, in that is the consummate aqueous deficient patient will be a Sjogren's patient. And I've never seen a Sjogren's patient with good meibomian glands. Right. You know, once that Sjogren's has progressed whatsoever. Well, you know, I appreciate our, our discussion today. Uh, it's, uh, it's a subject that I'm so passionate about and enjoy because to me, a dry eye is really this, this Rubik's Cube that you're putting together. You're taking case history. You're looking at point of care testing. You're using some experience to really isolate. You're finding out what bothers the patient, where we can really make a, a, an improvement and change their life. Uh, I appreciate that But I will say that, that the diagnostic tests help the Rubik's Cube be one that you can actually solve. It is, it is. <laughs> so it really is important to have the right tools to make sure that everything does come together um, because it does make your management of these patients so much easier. Yeah, it really does and it, it helps, but I'll tell you, to start a dry eye and, and event, you have the tools, you have the slit lamp, you have your finger to press on their lid, mm -hmm. and you have the vital dyes. And I think that's the beginning. And then you really get these other tests that really help you confirm and help you feel more comfortable about your diagnosis and follow your treatment. Well, thanks so much. I appreciate you uh, coming in today. Thank you.